0: And I was praying about what to do on Wednesday night and really felt led to do the book of James. So we're going to go through the book of James. Most of the preaching that we do here and teaching we do here that I've done, most of my ministry and that most of the other pastors do here, is called expository preaching, which is basically you take a subject and then you put scriptures together to help explain and and, and teach the subject. Um, But there's a a, a style of teaching that's very valid where you just take a book and you walk through it. And that's what we're going to do, at least with this book. We've already done a little bit with Philemon. Um, and one of the values of that is it teaches you how to study a book, because uh, you, although you can take a subject and go through, and there are all kinds of wonderful devices online and in our bookstore, concordances and study guides that can help you do that, but there's just something wonderful about taking a book and just beginning to read through it thoughtfully and prayerfully. When I was first saved, I just, for some reason, started in the book of Ephesians and I decided to in order to grasp it, I was going to take that book, that simple letter, and read it every day for a month. And my thinking ahead of time was, well, I'm not sure I can make it through a month because after two weeks I'm going to know everything that's in there and I will get bored by the time I'm finished the third week. Oh my goodness, was I wrong. That's still my, I love reading, I, I get something new after I read out of Ephesians, and this is 37 years later, almost 38 years later. So, so, but, but there's a way to approach it. And there's different ways to read a book. One is if you can just read it to see what's in it. You can read it to study it, but you can also read it kind of as a devotional. Well, we're going to read it to study it, to see what God wants to say to us out, out of this book. So before we do that, I want to explain to you, when you start to look through a book like this, it's very helpful to have some background on the book, to know who wrote it, why it's there, who it was written to, and what the real me- what the messages of the book, because this whole Bible is inspired by God, but it fits together. It fits together. So we're going to begin to look tonight. And we're going to look at that, and then we'll begin to get into it. So, who is this written by? Well, it's it's written in this case. It's written by James. Other books that Paul writes, the name that's on there is who he wrote it to. Who he wrote it, but this was written by James, and we're going to talk about who it's written to. So. Who is this James? Well, there are a number. There are several theories. There are three Jameses that are mentioned in the Bible specifically. There is James, John's brother, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Well, we know it wasn't him because in Acts chapter 12, he's executed by Herod. There's also a James, which is one of the listed apostles. He's called James the Lesser, but that's the only place he's ever named. And the third James that's referred to is Jesus' half-brother. Jesus is, in spite of what some of you may have been taught in the church you went to, is that Jesus had half-brothers. Mary was a virgin until Jesus was born, and then Mary had children. And there are people that don't agree with that, but it's what the Bible teaches. And so Mary's children, one of them, was James. James becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. In Jack's chapter 15 where there's a, there's a conference in Jerusalem basically to decide whether Christianity, this new thing, is going to be a separate religion or it's just going to be some adjunct or new feature of Judaism. That was decided at a council that was held in Jerusalem by the pillars of the heads of the church, and James steps forth as the spokesman for the church, brings all the discussion together, and he discerns what the Spirit of God is saying to the church, and discerns of course that the Spirit of God is saying that that you do not have to keep the law to be a Christian, and that was the issue. And so James steps forward as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and most likely that's the same James. The reason why that's important is you read through this book, you'll see James writes with authority. If he were just some believer out there, because he's writing it to leaders, he's writing it to believers that are going through a very difficult time. But he writes with an authority, and that real sense of authority comes from your calling. Uh, the founding pastor of this church, Pastor Sam, those of you who've been around long enough to know him, that man spoke with authority. I mean, even if he burped, it was with authority. I mean, whatever he did was with authority, and that was not the nature of his personality. It was the call on him. The, the, The office that he stood in gave him the authority to speak. And so there's an authority that you can try to work up yourself, but it doesn't work very well. But when God has given you a calling and you step into that calling, there's an authority that goes with that. And that James speaks with that authority. There are 54 incidents in this, and I didn't count them, I've read this in a study, 54 incidents in this simple short letter where he commands something, where he just says, do this, you must do this. And so it's very instructional. It's also a book that's it's filled with wisdom, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So... Now to whom is it written? Well he tells us it's written to the Jews that have been dispersed. What happened in that first century is that there was a tremendous, there was a tremendous persecution that came against the church. And as a result, many of the believers, instead of holding on to their house and their goods, fled Jerusalem to go to other parts of the known world around there most of which was a Gentile world it was up into what where Turkey is now which was called Asia Minor back then which is where the churches that Paul wrote to in Galatia and in in, in all some of those churches uh, were there and then over into Greece and the and it's called the dispersion this diaspora the, these Jewish believers to avoid persecution from their own Jewish leaders not Christian but the In the synagogue, they fled for their safety. Now, what they went through is called persecution. What we deal with is nothing compared to that. I mean, they literally lost their jobs, their homes, their possessions, and in some cases, parts of their family. And they chose Christ instead of their comfort. They chose Christ instead of their possessions. In many cases, they chose Christ instead of their freedom. And some cases, they chose Christ instead of their lives. And I really wonder what we would do today. If we were faced with some of those choices, I really wonder what we would do. Well, I believe God's strengthening us, so if that time ever comes, we would be prepared. But, but, but they face that, and so this letter is written to Jewish believers. They're they're Christians. They've been, that have been persecuted for leaving their Christianity, leaving the Judaism, and becoming Christians, and and because under the Jewish. Customs and under the Jewish law, it wasn't just like, well, I'm I'm a I'm a Jew and I believe in those things. I mean, it was part of your culture, it was part of your life, it may be part of your livelihood. And if you broke any of that, you would be you would be removed from the synagogue. And that was not just, oh, I can't go to that church; I can go to another church. No, no, you were you were excommunicated from fellowship. They didn't talk to you. And in John chapter twelve, it's around verses fifty two, fifty three, and there. Paul, John says that there were many of those of the Jewish, there were many of the Pharisees that believed in Christ. Many of them. But they would never confess Him publicly out of fear that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. So they were willing to deny him publicly, even though they believed in him in their heart, because they were afraid of being removed from the synagogue. And I just want to get across to us: that's not like being said, you can't come back to FCC anymore, but you can go to his providence over here, or waters, or some other church. No, you couldn't go to a church. And in those our society, that's not a big deal. But in their society, it was everything. And so that's what they were doing. They were they were they were removed from their synagogue and in act of fear for their lives, they literally spread out into into Asia Minor and over into Greece and up into what's now Syria and some other parts of the world. And what happens is when you get separated out from your core, when you get separated out from the your base of 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 of, of, of faith, what happens is the enemy can start picking you off. This is why it is so important, and I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight. It's so important that you are regularly in church. It's so important that you're not just here, but you're you're an active participant, an active part of the body here. Because that's not just for your benefit, it's for your protection. Because none of us can survive it out there. Or we can go through the motions, but we're not going to grow. I could not survive it been walking with the Lord for almost 38 years. I've been a pastor for 24 or something like that. And I could not, and you hear me say this at every altar, but it's true. None of us can make it out there. This is why, and again, I'm preaching to the choir, a midweek service is so important. It it, it grieves me because so many churches have let those midweek services go because they don't get enough attendance. And we're so blessed here because we get a good percentage of attendance on Wednesday nights. I'm loving on you tonight because before I get into what I'm going to get into. So but i 've just go. what but, but what happens here so this these believers are now out there basically on their own, and the world they 've gone out into is a pagan world they 're out there where i mean there 's there's, there's temples they perform blood sacrifices there 's all kinds of prostitution and immorality going on in the temples and you can imagine what 's going on in the homes, and they 're now out in this kind of a world, trying to hold on to their faith. Not only that, out in the world, there are what are called Judaizers. They're Jewish, not Christians, they're Jews that are out there trying to draw them back into Judaism. So there's a lot coming at them, let alone the fear of somebody catching up with them and saying, you know, you escaped from Jerusalem, we're gonna drag you back and execute you. So there's a lot of fear involved, there's a tremendous sacrifice involved, and as a result, they've been going through a very difficult, challenging time. And in this letter, in the, a large part of this letter is to help them to hold on to their faith. To help them not just to hold on to their faith, but to stay on target, to stay on focus. And it, this has just been going on. It went off in me and when we we're seeing Cornerstone tonight, it's went off in me in, in preparing last Sunday for the message and, and already stirring me for this Sunday about talking about change. When things begin to get shaken in, in, in our lives or shaken in our, in our world around us or shaken in our government or shaken whatever it is, we have to know what to hold on to for our security. And, and at the time things start shaking, is not the time to figure that out. The time to figure it out is when you're at peace and establish that. And the Bible says Jesus is the rock of our salvation. So it's your relationship with Him. But the question is, is how is your relationship with Him not in church, but out there in a the crisis? How's your relationship with Him out there in the middle of a storm when you feel like you're all alone and everything's come against you? What's your relation, what's gonna keep us steady then? Well, it's what we do in the peaceful time. It's what we do day in and day out that begins to build that relationship and build that faith in us so that when the storms come, and they will come, you stay steady. And I've just gone through this this last year. Because as you know, I've gone through a physical storm that turned me my one end of me upside down the other, and I found out where my faith really was and where it wasn't. And the wonderful thing is where I found out it was lacking, God came and met me there. So that I could grow and change. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of my so that's who this is written to. So it's written to not just encourage them and say, Look guys, you're gonna make it. Not just, you know, sometimes what we think we need is not what we need. I'll say that over here. Sometimes what we think we need is not what we need. Sometimes we think we need a hug. Oh, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. And there's sometimes we need a hug. Sometimes what we need is for it to be turned around and... (laughs) It's an interesting story. And this is not something I thought of. I heard this from another teacher. But it really struck me. You know, John the Baptist, we'll just take our time going through this. You know, John the Baptist, after he did what he was called to do, ends up in jail. And he ends up in jail waiting to have his head removed from the rest of his body. And there's a place where he sends some of his remaining disciples to Jesus. This is amazing. What I love about the Bible is that these are real people. They're real people. They have strengths. They have weaknesses. They have good days and days that aren't quite so good. They have days when their faith is so strong... And days where their faith isn't quite so strong. And the Bible tells it all. Aren't you glad you're not in the Bible? It tells it all. And with very few exceptions, it shows their strengths and it shows their weaknesses. So that tells me I don't have to be perfect all the time. I don't have to hit this standard all the time. I want to grow and I want to have more days when I hit it, but those days when I don't hit it, that's okay. I, God's still working in my life. So you've here you've got John the Baptist, who's recognized that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that, that baptizes him in the water, and the, and, the, and the Holy Spirit comes down and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's the one that said, I must decrease so that he can increase. He's the one that said, I'm not even fit to, 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 to untie his sandals ends up in prison when he's decreased and Jesus is increased and he takes his disciples, some of his disciples and says, excuse me, would you go visit Jesus and just check again? Are you really the one? Imagine that. He's gone through all of this in great faith and he's sitting, uh, he's sitting alone in prison and he begins to question his faith. He begins to look back over his life and says, Did I perhaps miss it? And so he sends these disciples to Jesus. And here's Jesus' cousin. The one that was his forerunner. The one who, who has been faithful and loyal. Comes and just asks for a little bit of encouragement. Just look, send me back to the master. Send me, send me back to, my, to, to, to John and just, just reassure him that, that you are the one. And instead, Jesus has him follow him around. He says, I've opened blind eyes, haven't I? I've raised the dead, haven't I? I've cast out demons, haven't I? And, and then he sends them back. And then after he sends him back, now he starts extolling John. Saying there's no one's lived so far that's, that's better than John. Why didn't he do that to them when he could go back and say, Jesus said you're the one and there's nobody greater in heaven than you are. You following me? Why didn't he tell the disciples to go back and tell him that? Instead, all he did was tell him what Jesus, show off what Jesus was doing. But you know what he was doing? Because the foundation of John the Baptist's ministry is a prophecy in Isaiah. And what Jesus is doing is going through that prophecy and saying, I have fulfilled everything that's in that prophecy and that prophecy says you're the one that's going to come and you're going to announce the coming of the one that's going to do those things. So here's what that all boils down to. We look at that situation out of great compassion and think, Jesus, you are hard hearted. All all John needs is a hug. Just a nice love note saying, Good job, John. You know, you're suffering well. But sometimes when when people come down to us at that level, what they're really saying is like, I'm feeling sorry for you because you're having a bad day. I don't really believe that you can get out of that. Instead, what Jesus was doing was reminding him of his call and that he had fulfilled his call. And that's the greatest compliment and encouragement Jesus could have given John. Instead of saying, look, it's okay, John, I understand how you feel, he simply reminded him of his purpose and that he was faithful to that purpose. So there's times God, instead of coming to us and saying, look, I understand you're having a tough day. Sometimes God comes to me and jerks the slack out of me with the word of God. And it says, boy, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You're only praising the devil instead of praising me. Because with me, there's nothing to feel sorry for yourself about. Because my word says you're more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. My word says I only ever cause you to triumph through Christ. So why are you sitting there feeling sorry for what you're going through? Because what you're doing is you're admitting that the devil's winning. Why don't you stand up and start praising me and start giving thanks to me? That's not a hug. That's a kick in the seat of the pants. But it's what I needed. There are times he'll hug you. But he knows what you need. Almost always, what we want isn't what we need. Now, I said that in that long-winded way to say that's what James is doing here. James, you'd think, James would say, look, just hold on. You can make it, guys. You're doing well. But instead, he's calling them back to the Word. The rock that will get you through, actually... I, in a way, I misspoke earlier. I said, the rock you need to build in your life is your foundation of Jesus. But what Jesus said is what will get you through the storm in Matthew 7. What Jesus said is what will get you through the storm is he who hears the word and does the word will be like the man who built his house on the rock. So the rock that gets us through, the rock that gets us through the storms and the tests is the word of God that we're doing, that becomes part of our life. And so what James is calling them back to, I never taught this before in my life, what James is calling them back to is what they already know of God's Word. So in the storm, what God's Spirit will tell you to do is He'll speak the Word to you. And then you need to be speaking the Word and be doing what the Word says. Okay? So with that as background, that's who, we're, that's who it's written to. Well, that kind of covers our purpose, too. It's to help these persecuted believers to stand strong. Now I want to give you, let's get a little bit of perspective about this because there was controversy in the early church or well, even up until Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, of course, was the great reformer. Martin Luther is the one that discovered or rediscovered the doctrine of righteousness by faith. That we're saved by faith in what Christ did and not by any works of our own. And, and that had been hidden for years from man. God didn't hide it. Man hid him from himself. But Martin Luther had that Revelation, and that 's what started the, the the Protestant reformation and and so and, and so but when Martin Luther saw this book, he believed it should not have been part of the bible it 's called the canon it 's what letters should be part of the the inspired Word of God, and so because you 'll seen i 'm sure some of you' have seen movies out there and some blogs out there about there ought to, there's, a, there's a, there ought to be the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of all of these things they may be legitimate letters that were written. But over the period of time, the church fathers, through prayer, decided what was part of God's word to us and what were just other letters. And so Martin Luther had an issue with this because a lot of this is based on what you do, not what you believe. And we'll explain that as we get into it. So he didn't understand what this was doing. Now, what I personally believe is why this is where it is is because this is going to be be worth writing down. James follows Hebrews. Everybody get that? That's heavy. James follows Hebrews, but I re- believe it follows Hebrews for a reason. Sometimes what I've done is I've just read through the New Testament. Just sit down and read through it. Maybe not all in one sitting, but I'll read one week, I'll read one letter. The Next week, I'll read another letter. Some of them are big enough I may have to divide it up in between two weeks. But as I was doing that, I noticed a progression. I, and I don't want to get sidetracked into this. But, but Romans' is doctrine, pure doctrine, And then you begin to get into Corinthians, which is a letter written to two letters written to the same church to correct issues. But we get some wonderful insight into what Christ has done for us through that. But as you get further along, it begins to get a little tougher. You ever notice First and Second Peter's a little tougher. Titus is a little. They're not some of my favorite books to read. Because it talks about how to go through difficult times. I don't want to know how to go through difficult times, because I don't want to go through difficult times. So don't tell me the world's going to get shaken, and what what remains of God is the only thing. I don't want to know that. I want to know that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I want to know that God wants to heal me, and that's all part of the gospel. But there's a reason why that's in there, and it's kind of like the... The, the, the Brussels sprouts and the greens and the beans that you, you don't want to eat, but you know they're good for you. But I want to go from the salad to the dessert, but I don't want to eat, re- but we know we need to eat all of that because it's good for us. Anyway, so the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite books, the book of Hebrews is written again to Jewish believers that had been dispersed, but they were being tempted to go back under the law. They were tempted to try to take Christ and fit him somewhere under the law again. So this is why Hebrews begins with a comparison of Christ with angels, then of Christ with the high priest, of Christ with the law. So it's a comparison of Christ. But in the process, the underlying message of the letter, the book of Hebrews, the underlying message is this gospel of grace is that, that, that God loves us so much that, that we are to labor to enter into His finished work. Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about His finished work. It says that that as the Sabbath was, that God rested on the Sabbath. And I was meditating on that one day and I realized, because it says later on, it guess to verse 7, that to, to, we are to enter into His rest. And then it dawned on me, God didn't rest because He was tired. Because God doesn't get tired after seven days worth of work. We may, But nothing tires God out. Now the reason God rested is the work was done. So what we're to enter into is a work that's already been done. So we're not to be working to finish that work. He's done it. And the finished work is he has paid for our sin and given us his righteousness. And now we're to enter into that rest and receive that as a gift. And then the end of the book talks about learning to walk by faith. Do that by faith. So Hebrews is a wonderfully encouraging letter. It's a wonderfully encouraging letter. Some of my favorite verses are in there just to draw me, give me confidence that wherever I am, however I acted yesterday or felt today, I can come into God's presence and be accepted. I can come openly before Him. Wonderful invitation. It's very relational. But having done that, now you go into James, and James deals with very practical ways of living our life. So it's a balance to it, and the church needs that balance. Right now, we're in a season where so much of the teaching out there is on grace, and we've needed that, because we've come out of an era where what was taught was the Word and faith, but what we've done is we've taken faith and turned it into a law. What do I have to do? What are the 15 things I've got to do to be healed? And all the focus is on what do I have to do. And so the Spirit of God will bring, when we are on one side or the next He'll bring teaching in and highlight teaching that will begin to adjust that, that back. And now sometimes to adjust something from this side to this side requires an overemphasis. Anybody ever learn to ride a bicycle? Three of you. Okay, good. That's good. Okay. I remember when my father taught me how to ride a bicycle, he said, well, what you got to do is get on the bike and balance. Now, this is not what would happen because I was too young, but what would have gone through my mind if I were older, is what's balance? Well, balance is when you, balance is when you, balance is when you don't lean too far to the left or too far to the right. Okay. How do I do that? Well, you start leaning to the left and if you start feeling like you're going to go over, you start leaning to the right. How far to the left do I go before I start? Well, you, you got to get on the bike. You can hear principles, but the only way you're gonna learn where that point of balance is, is to get on a bicycle, And have them go along as my father did, and then let go. And you got to find it out for yourself by leaning this way, whoa! And maybe you went too far that time and fell down and skinned your knee. Now I know I went too far that way. So now what you got to do is adjust back this way. But it's always this constant process of adjusting back and forth, which means you may, for very little time, be right dead center. But that's okay. You're still balancing. Well, the work of the Spirit of God in the church is like that, except it doesn't happen so fast. So the mistake we make is when we take one leaning to the left and say, that's what we're supposed to do. So it's all lean to the left. But some of us may need to lean to the right. I was asking God about this one time. He says, well, you've had four kids. Were they all the same? Uh, No. In fact, two of them were identical twins, and they weren't exactly the same in how they handled situations. And he said, well, as you learn to discipline them, and you learn to train them, and you learn to teach them, it was based on where they were. So you didn't do the same thing with everybody. He said, well, I don't do the same thing with everybody either. I know where you are and what you need. So as you learn to listen to what I'm talking to you about, it may not be what I'm talking to Gary about. So this is why we can't compare ourselves with each other. It's learning to know what God's doing with you. Well, the same is true with the church. The same is true with the church at this particular, in general at this particular season. So here we have a teaching where we've had the book of the Hebrews, which is all which is about grace, which is very essential. But the problem is, once you're set off, all you know is grace. The Bible's not all—I mean, grace is underneath everything because we can't do any of it without grace. Then what you get is a flabby, lazy church that thinks all we do is come to church and hear how blessed we are, and don't realize that there's a lost world out there we're there to reach. Don't there's things such as Christian character. That God is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. That the Spirit of God is in you to form Christ in you. Paul says to one of the churches, I labor until Christ is formed in you. God wants to change you. That's why we're talking about change on Sundays. God wants to change me. He wants to change you. And He wants to change the church, this church. He wants to change His church so we're never staying where we are. There's a process of growth. So to do that, part of this maturing as Christians is not just receiving His grace. We have to do that first because otherwise we're going to turn this into a law. But that's not everything. Ephesians 2, four says where, 2, eight says that we've been saved by grace. And that grace is a gift of God by faith, grace through faith. But it's, that's not our own. It's a gift from God. That we are His workmanship. That's grace. It's, we are who God's made us to be in Christ. Unto good works. So now we're in a tra- we're in a season where people want to throw good works out. Except Jesus talks in Revelation about coming and inspecting our good works. So we have to have good work, but that's not how we're saved by God. That's not how we're our qualification to come before God is not our good works, but we should there should be good works. So this is a balance. And so as we get into this book, and we'll see this more clearly as we get into it. So I believe the book of James is essential, and it's exactly the right spot. Because as you go through it, Hebrews, will, will, if you read it carefully, will open your heart up to the love and grace of God. But then if we just sit in Hebrews, we'll just sit in God's presence and say, Oh, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? And come to church and just sit in church and have wonderful meetings and bless each other and prophesy to each other and bless each other while there's a world around us going to hell. And so there's a point we need that, but then there's the other side of it is we need to begin to, to step out and act. And where is that balance? And James helps us with that. So here again is a body of believers this is written to, and it's written to help them go through a difficult time. So it follows Hebrews, it's written as to them to give them a perspective. And what this is very one of the features of this book is it's very practical. Hebrews is very theoretical. But James is very practical. In fact, there's aspects of it that almost mirror the Sermon on the Mount in James chapter in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. In fact, one of the things I looked at said that there are there are 18 similar statements in James that that link up with statements that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about your heart, your attitude, your character. It's it's about inner things, inner attitudes of the heart. Well, James speaks to many of those same issues, very practical, uh, and, and, it's, and it's very down-to-earth. It's the kind of thing that you can look at, read and look at your life and say, well, I'm doing that or I'm not doing that. And so we, with that by way of background an introduction, let us get into it. All right, we got some time tonight to get into it. James a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So James knew who he was. He didn't say James, a half-brother of Jesus. He didn't say James, the head of the church in Jerusalem. His, his image of himself, you'll see this from the Apostle Paul. Paul's image of himself was a bondservant to Christ. Now, a bondservant in those days, the Greek word is doulos. A bondservant, it's not just a servant, it's a servant. A bond servant was somebody that voluntarily put themselves in servitude to someone. It may have been in, 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 the, in when, when this nation was being settled in the beginning. You would have people from Europe that would want to come over to this nation, and they didn't have the passage, the money to, to, for passage. So they would go to a, 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 a maybe a, a, a businessman over here or contact them and say, "Look, if you will pay for my passage." I will work for you for five years. Well, they didn't just work for them. They became their servant. And so there was a term bond means an agreement. So for an agreed period of time, they would put themselves in servitude to that person. So this is important because Paul and James did not become servants of Christ because Christ grabbed them and made them. It was because they chose to submit their lives to Him and to His will and to His purpose. So that's their identity. That's very important because a lot of times we deal with issues in our life of being intimidated. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of us have had to deal with fear, intimidated. People just intimidate the fear of man. And, 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 And you may be affected by it and don't even realize it. If you're worried about what people think of you excessively, that's the fear of man. And so... The the way you overcome intimidation isn't by trying to fight against it, it's by submitting to him. Because as we submit to him, he becomes our protector, he becomes our shield, he becomes our strength, he becomes our protector. great example of that is Moses. Moses was called by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into, into the promised land. And in this journey, somewhere along the way, he had a brother, not somewhere, he had a brother and sister. Aaron was his brother. Miriam was his sister. Aaron was second in charge. And one day, Aaron and or Moses, or Aaron and his sister, got together and started discussing their brother Moses, which is like any family, and began to think, "Well, wait a minute. What's so special about him? We knew we knew the kid when we were growing up in Egypt. We knew him. Who does he think he is? That he's some great prophet? God speaks through us. We've prophesied." Why are we any greater than him? And they began to speak this out, and jealousy and envy began to get into their heart as they talk to one another. That's another message for another time. And, and 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 this began to speak this out to one another. And what they didn't realize is any time you start complaining or sorry, God hears it. Especially when you complain against leaders. God hears it. So what does Moses do? Moses comes to the tent, the door of their tent, And when he sees what they're doing and hears what they say to him, Moses falls on his face and starts interceding for them. And then God shows up in a whirlwind. God showed up. Moses never defended himself. God defended him. And God spoke, put them in their place. So, why did I get off on that? Oh, submission. Because Moses was perfectly submitted to God. I think he was perfect. But his heart was submitted under God. He was a ser- In his heart, he was a servant of God. We're sons and daughters of the living God. But because we love him and we love what matters to him, we should have the heart of a servant. Because in the kingdom of God, remember, everything's upside down. If you want to get to the top, you go to the bottom. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 13, he said, I've washed your feet to teach you this. You call me Lord and Master and I am. If I, Lord and Master, have served you with the lowest servant and washed your feet, shouldn't you do all likewise? So the heart of the the heart of the kingdom of God is servant servanthood. And uh, there was uh, one of the things my son says because he got in and talking to one of the bands that been through here. We got so many. You may hear more of this this year. We have so many for pastors. We have so many leadership conferences out there, but you never see a followership conference. Teaching people how to follow. Everybody wants to be a leader, but nobody wants to learn how to follow. But we're supposed to be followers of Christ. So maybe if we learn how to follow better, God can entrust us to be leaders better. In fact, if you you can't be a good leader unless you've learned how to be a good follower. Oh we'll get let's see, that's verse one bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. That's what we've talked about. My brethren, so we know it's believers, it just gets right off to this wonderful, exciting, great, wonderful, good news start. My brethren, count it all joy. Oh, isn't this wonderful? When you fall into various trials. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. He doesn't even gently lead into this. Why? Because they were in trials. They were struggling, they were, they were in difficulty, they were in the middle of trials, and James goes right to the heart of it. When you're in the middle of, notice you fall into them, you don't choose to get into a trial, we fall into them, which means <laughs> which means we're not watching where we're going. Because when I'm watching where I'm going, I only go where I intend to go. So if I fall into something, it's because I wasn't watching where I was going and stepped into something or moved into something that I never wanted to get into. So if we're in various trials, maybe we weren't watching, paying attention and that's how we ended up in the trial. Well, we're not going to go there because I'm not sure I have the answer to that. But it's an interesting statement. When you fall into various, which means there are all different kinds of trials, count it all joy. So falling into the trial... It's an accident, but counting it all joy is an act of your will. The term count in the Greek, if I remember correctly, I didn't, I didn't look it up today, it comes from an accounting word. In, a, in, a, in, a, in an accounting system, in a double-entry accounting system, which any real accounting system has, you have two columns. You have credit and debit, and I always have trouble remembering which is it, but it doesn't matter because I don't have to do it anymore. But then you have your expenditures and your income get put into a charge to an account. So we have an account for the income that comes in from Sunday ties and offerings. We have an account that comes in from the Wednesday night ties and offerings. We have an account so when the money comes in, the, the bookkeepers have to decide which account does that go into, which cubbyhole. There's one checking account, but in our books, which account. So that's a choice that's made based on what's appropriate. That's what that word means. So it's a decision to make. And I remember back when I was running things in the, in the office, we would have some new thing come up, and they would come to me and say, what, what account should we charge that to? So we'd have to, I'd have to think it through, what's the most appropriate, in light of what reports we went at the end of the year, what's the most appropriate cubbyhole account to charge that to? It was an intentional act of my will for what was what was the best would produce the best reports. It wasn't what just felt like the moment. So when you fall into a various trial, you have to purposefully just like we have to decide. This goes into account ten forty one. We have to choose to, to treat. Whoop! Thought I kicked the bucket there. We have to choose to treat that experience as something that may not feel natural. So we have to choose to treat that trial as what account joy. That's not going to be because you feel it, because if we felt it, we wouldn't have to account it; it would just naturally happen. But we're to, it's an act of our will, which is part of the process of renewing our mind, because what our unrenewed mind will tend to do, especially when it's connected to our undisciplined flesh is we find ourselves in some trial, some emergency comes up, something, notice it doesn't say, if you fall into various trials. It says when. So the good news that we start out with in the book of James is, you will fall into various trials. So you might as well suck it up now and say, I'm going to fall into some trials, how do I handle it? Instead of getting in the middle, why is this happening to me? I learned an interesting thing this week. This is just, this is Wednesday night, we just kind of go along. I was listening to another teacher, and he's talking about the book of Job. The book of Job, of course, is is, a, is, is one massive trial that Job went through, all in a couple of days. And Job at the, and, and Job is starting to, why did this happen? Why? And Job's three wonderful friends show up. And they spend the next 37 verse chapters debating with Job why this happened. Somewhere around chapter 40, God shows up. And God starts speaking. Now listen carefully, I never heard anybody say this before. In everything God says, he never says why Job went through it. Wouldn't you think God would answer them? I mean, that's their whole debate. Why has this happening to Job? Oh, because you've done this or not. The Job said, no, I haven't done this. It's God's fault. It's your fault. They're all debating why this has happened. God shows up who knows all the answers. He never tells them why. Maybe why isn't so important. Maybe why something happens to us isn't so important. Because while we're we're trying to figure out why, all we're doing is thinking about what happened to me. While we're trying to figure out why, why almost never gets me out of it. Why gets me deeper in it. Because now my emotions, because all I'm doing is meditating on this trial I was pushed into now. (laughs) I just fallen. you pushed me into it. It's your fault I got in this trial. Whatever it is. But, but all we're doing is, while we're trying to figure out why, all we're doing is, this is what Job did. Job worked himself up. Job starts out in the degree of faith. But by the time Job gets really flowing in all this, he's mad at God. He's mad that this is not fair. God, if you were anybody else that did these things to me, I could call you to court. And we would have a judge, a dazeman, to argue that I could argue my case. And I can't do that. With, I mean, the stuff is coming out of Job. It wasn't coming out in the beginning. But it all came out of them because they're spousing they're this stuff back. Be careful who you're talking to when you're going through a trial. Be careful who you tell when you're going through a trial. I shared with this congregation what I was going through because I believe God told me to. But I was dealing with that before I ever told anybody. Because I, wanted, I, don't, I don't want to be talking a about, lot about it. I want to, unless i'm talking with people I know are going to stand in faith with me, but I know the Lord told me to share, so I had faith to do that but but so but when God shows up, he doesn't answer why. He starts asking questions. Where were you? What he does is he doesn't hug job oh, this is good we're coming full circle. He doesn't put his arms around job's oh. Oh, poor Job, I mean, I didn't do this to you, the devil did this to you. He's the one that came and did, Job, I know you lost your family, you lost everybody, but the one family member you should have lost, you know, because she told him, just curse God and die. You know, and then and you, you should have, you know, you got all these friends, you know, that are trying to tear you down. Job, I know this is terrible. No, Job, God starts asking Job, who do you think you are? He puts Job in his place. But out of love, he corrects Job. He jerks the slack out of Job. And by the time God's finished, because God is a father that loves us, but a father that loves us will sometimes speak straight talk because he loves us. And God corrected Job. He corrected an inner attitude that Job had that would hurt him down the road. In fact, that attitude opened him up to what he went through. It opened him up to what Satan was able to bring into his life. And when God's finished with him, he's twice as blessed as before any of it happened. So as this is all about going through trials and how to go through it. And the first instructions are to count it all joy. And that word joy is a big word. It's, it's the same word when he said greetings. It's like, it's, it's, it's like chorus. It's like, it's, it's to be, uh, uh, to celebrate. It's to, it's, to, it's, to, it's, to, it's to throw your arms around somebody. I've heard some people say it really means to throw a party. It means to be joyful, happy. In a trial? How can you do that? Well, he's going to explain to us how to do that. See, in order to mature as Christians, and this is one of the concerns I have, because as I hear people talking in the body of Christ today, especially young people, I I don't hear a lot of regard for the Word of God. It doesn't mean people don't read it, but we don't read it as an authority in our life. It's something we read maybe for promised scriptures or prophetic scriptures or or God's going to do this, but we don't very often read it for correction or read it to govern how I live my life. And so one of the teachers I've listened to says, you know, and and I think I've mentioned this before, he says, most Christians nowadays don't let the Bible interfere with what they believe. We need to examine our own hearts, our own lives. What authority does this have in our life? Because when you get into trial, this is the only thing you can count on. And if you haven't been letting this speak into your life as an authority in the trial, when God's promises come to you, they won't have any authority either. They won't have any authority in your life either, which is why many of us are struggling with faith. I know God's word says by stripes I'm healed but I still have this pain and I don't see it to overcome it and the reason is this word doesn't have enough authority in me to, sp- to speak louder than the pain to speak louder than the circumstances say amen or Ome, oh me one or the other <laughs> so the point is this and we'll have to end with this point is this is foreign thinking to the average person. I mean, endure the trial? Okay, I can understand that. But count it all joy when you fall into this trial? I mean, the only one crazier than James was Paul. Paul in Romans 5, having just talked about the wonderful peace we have with God through this grace in which we stand... And says, and we exalt in the glory of God. Well, we can all praise God for that. We exalt thee. We can sing that in church. He says, and not only that, we exalt in tribulation. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. You've been hanging out with James? You've been drinking the same stuff James been drinking? Yes. He says, we, He says, we glory in tribulation. James is saying, I count it all joy when I fall into various trials. Either they're crazy, because they've been spending too much time in the Bible. I mean, they've been fanatics with this stuff. They're, they're not well grounded. They're not dealing with reality. They're off in La La Land somewhere, because they're talking about going through a trial and counting it joy. They're talking about going through tribulation and glory in the tribulation. Either they're crazy... In which case, I can't trust anything they say. Or they see something we don't see. They've tasted something we don't taste. And Paul was extremely intelligent, extremely spiritually sensitive. The doctrine he had, he got personally from an appearance of Jesus in the Arabian desert. James was Jesus' half-brother. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared personally to James and some others. So these are two men that had a personal audience with the risen Christ. So, I love you, and we're wonderful people. I love me, and and, and I I, I can understand some things, but I'm going to go with them that maybe they see something we don't see. Maybe, see, this is where we can come to church, we can hear a message like this and say, yes, amen, Pastor, that's a great message, and walk out there and leave all of that here. But the book of James, the book of James tells us whether we're taking it home in the car with us, whether we're getting up tomorrow and beginning to apply it and meditate on it and bring it into our lives, because what we hear in here doesn't do us any good. We need it, it's what we do with it out there. What we read from here doesn't do us any good unless we apply it in our lives. And so there's something that they see, that's what we're going to begin to get into next week. There's something James sees about the trials he's gone through, and he's trying to encourage them and what they've gone through. There's something about the trials that Paul went through, because he went through You ever think you're having a bad day? I can give you some scriptures to read of what Paul went through. But he went through them with an attitude of victory. He went through them with an attitude of joyousness. I mean, he's in the Philippian jail, the inner, lower jail, at midnight with Silas chained in stocks, and they begin to sing praises unto God. And that's an earthquake came, but they didn't know an earthquake was going to come. They weren't seeing, so an earthquake would come. They were seeing because they were joyful. Some of the, the letter of Hebrews was written and said, and you joyfully experience the plundering of your property. Well, we this is not just Paul and James now. They're all nuts. No. They've all seen something and experienced something we haven't yet. And I'm spending time with this because I believe the Spirit of God wants to arrest us, awaken us, and paint a picture to us. That there's a place we need to grow to, and it all is the process of renewing our mind, learning to think differently. My signature course on renewing the mind, Romans twelve two, we're transformed. That word I've heard you've heard me teach before means to take what God's put on the inside and bring it to the outside. What's part of what He's put on the inside is joy. Part of what He's put on the inside is His peace but it's to bring it to the outside. So we're living it out in the middle of the trials. We're living it out in the challenges. We're living it out when we failed miserably yesterday, or we're living it out when we succeeded wonderfully today. We're living it out, and that happens by renewing our mind, changing how we think about the circumstances. And the way the Bible tells us to think about them is almost always the exact opposite of the way the world thinks about them, and therefore what we've been indoctrinated with. The world tells us when you fall to various trials, panic, feel sorry for yourself, tell everybody what you're going through, call everybody you know and tell them how terrible this is. We cover it by saying pray. But what we really want is we want them to know what we're going through. We need to renew our minds. We need to rem- We need to mature. We need to grow up. And the good news is this word, as we begin to read this together, and not argue with it, but accept the implanted word which is able to save your soul, I'm getting ahead of myself, this word will produce in us that maturing. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word tonight. We thank you that you love us so much, that not only did you save us and redeem us, but you don't leave us where we are you love us where we are but you love us so much you won't leave us there that you'll challenge us and father there may be some of us maybe many of us tonight that are facing difficult challenges and they may be even overwhelming to us and we came tonight hoping we were going to hear a word of encouragement a word of comfort but only you know what we need and lord we're open and willing because we trust you that you will not just speak into our lives, but you will bring into our lives what it is we need where we are so that we can stand up, we can stiffen our back, and we can overcome. You know what we're able to do. And so, Father, we trust ourselves to you. I pray, Father, that the seed of the word that your spirit has sown into each one of our hearts tonight will begin to take root and the Spirit of God who dwells in us, we begin to take the truth, the seed we've heard tonight, and begin to open our eyes, of our own, our own eyes individually where we are, that we would truly see and hear what it is you're speaking to us. You love us so you only speak out of love, but you will speak to us the truth in love. And we thank you so much for that. We trust ourselves to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.